Good morning, Midland Free. I have a gift for you today. It's uh, in here. It's called a sermon. I hope you'll enjoy it, and I hope you'll um, benefit and be blessed by it as well. My name is Jeremy. I'm the preaching pastor here. We welcome you back to a new year, to 2017. I hope your first week of 2017 went wonderful. I am, in fact, uh, wearing one of my Christmas gifts today, and, and, and feel free, let's have fun with it, why not? Go ahead, guess. What is it? Oh, nope. Not my new underwear. Nope. That's good. You must have been at the uh, New Year's Eve event. You're ready for comedy. Very good. Okay. What else? Any, what's that? Shoes? Nope, but you're close. Socks, exactly right. Of course, for Christmas I got brand new socks. I don't know if they match or not, but my mother-in-law gave them to me, so I figured I better wear them. So, Mom and Poppy, here you are. I'm wearing socks on Sunday morning. That's good. This year, some unusual things happened, like Christmas and New Year's Day falling on a Sunday. And that was an interesting process for us as a church and also for the pastoral team and leadership. Hey, what are we going to do? Are people going to sleep in on New Year's Day or are they going to come to church? Are people going to be here on Christmas Day or they have family obligations? What do we do? And we opted and we actually added an additional service beyond our uh, Christmas Eve. We added a New Year's Eve and gave as many options as we could. And the tech crew did amazing, putting in all kinds of overtime, but... What's interesting to me is this, is having those two holidays juxtaposed, uh, Christmas and then New Year's, there's a familiar greeting for each one. When you see someone on that day on Christmas, what do you say? Merry Christmas. That's what we say, right? Merry Christmas. You see someone on New Year's Day, what do you say? Happy New Year. Exactly right. Well, last Sunday, someone was exiting the church, and they'd, of course, just seen me recently, so they're like, Merry, no, Happy, Happy New Year. And it was an interesting experience because as I processed those two statements, the weight of it kind of hit me, and a little bit in an overwhelming way. I thought about it and said, what is, what is the difference there? And for me, it's quite significant. And I didn't exactly know what it was at first. I was thinking, okay, when I wish someone a Merry Christmas, I'm like, yeah, Merry Merry Christmas. Mm, I feel that. You know, do you feel that? Like, Merry Christmas. Even if you're not happy, you're like, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And then you come the following week and it's New Year's and you're like, Happy New Year. But then I started to think about my upcoming new year, my dad on hospice and this and that and this and that and this and that. And I'm like, I'm not sure how happy this new year is going to be. And I listened to that greeting in my head and I realized how sort of vague it was. I mean, I, I wish you a happy new year. I do. I, I wish the best for you. I hope that uh, your insurance rates go down and your income goes up. Merry Happy New Year. I wish that, I hope that you do better on the test than you expected. I hope that you get promoted and yet have less stress. 
I hope that you have a good new year. I wish for you all the best. But what happens when what is best isn't what is best? I mean, I can sit up here and wish you well wishes all day long for things that we desire and we want and we think will make the year just right. And that might make a single year. But what would make forever? Merry Christmas. There's a big difference between Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Happy New Year is this ephemeral wish for things to go well that you hope work out in your view that make the path smoother and easier and more fun or delightful. But Merry Christmas is a greeting that says, even in the midst of this hellhole, we're going to have a good time. It's going to be okay because eternity is coming. And even though I got this year and maybe the next and whatever else, God knows what, Merry Christmas. That is the hope of the gospel, the eternal cosmic scope of God's redemption of not only mankind, but all of creation. And that is so much bigger and so much better than Happy New Year. Happy New Year is great. I I hope things go well, but I don't know. But I know this, Merry Christmas. Today, as we come to the book of James, in some ways, I think his message might be Merry Christmas. Because one of the first things he's going to tell us in this book, filled with suffering, surrounded by persecution, pressed on every side, is count it all joy. And I read that statement and think to myself, wow, how in the world? Is this guy nuts? What is wrong with this fellow? I mean, there's a number of difficult things in the Bible, right? we got Jesus raising from the dead, God creating the world, walking on water, water to wine, yada, yada, yada. There's some pretty crazy stuff you have to believe if you believe the Bible. But this one, (laughs) this one might be up there among the craziest. That when you encounter difficulties, when you encounter trials, when you encounter tests and tribulations, that you actually count it as joy. How does that work? James chapter 1. James chapter 1. The words are going to be up on the screen for you, and I'll go ahead and read them. There's blue Bibles in the back if you want one of those too. But this is, this is a neat letter from Jesus' half-brother. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. 
Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Merry Christmas. This is the book of James, thanks be to God, and it's interesting to note that this is actually, like I said earlier, Jesus' half-brother. We're going to spend the next several months going through this book, and it's got all kinds of insights for us, very practical tips for daily living. This is sometimes referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament because it is packed with little bite-sized nuggets of wisdom that once you take a bite of them, you realize there's so much more there left to chew. Today, as a result of that genre, what I'll do is I'll just walk through the text. I'm going to go sort of verse by verse, word by word. Sometimes I do it one way, sometimes another, but this is, I think, appropriate for the way in which James communicates today. But if you're looking for hooks, let me give you three big um, words, or not big words, but uh, big, big points to sort of use as your landmarks as we go. And it's this, we're we're asking the question, how do we count it all joy? That's how I started is, look, James tells you to count the difficult things joy. How do you do that? Well, there's a process involved. And the way it works is this, is it begins with trials or tribulations or tough stuff. And then it moves to the key hinge or or the bridge that moves you from trials to joy, and that is wisdom. And then from wisdom, the final result is joy. So how should you walk this path? We will walk it slowly today, but clearly, hopefully, from trials to wisdom to joy. Let me say it like this. I'm going to... Uh, define this process in terms of what I would call poetry. It's, it's not poetry like rhymey, rhymey, but it's like Old Testament parallelism, which means uh, one phrase is juxtaposed above the other. You'll see this in the Psalms and Proverbs a lot. But I wrote one, uh, not really an inspired poem, but what I see as the defining process that you see in this chapter. Because what happens is we are... Western thinkers, we're very logical, and so we like to go from like point A to point B to point C, all the way through from sort of a chronological start to finish sort of way. But when you read this, James is obviously from a different cultural background. He's Jewish, and he's like, you know, we just sit around the campfire and tell stories and start with whatever we want and end wherever we want, and eventually, hopefully, we get the point across, you know? It's kind of like, well, I'll try to refrain from male-female jokes. But anyways, he is he's going all over the place with this conversation. And it's somewhat jolting and jarring. And, and, and he just begins with, count it all joy. And you're like, what? Count it all joy? How do you get there? But then as you read the passage and flesh it out and watch the process, it actually makes quite a bit sense. So what I did is I'm, I'm going to work through the passage in its order, but I also put this in sort of the chronological order too, if that works for you. So here's how it goes. 
Um, this is the process, step by step. Here's a picture of the stair steps. I'm not going to go in detail on this right away, but I just want you to see this process is a stair step. You're starting at the bottom with the T, moving to the top with the joy. And the way it works is this. I'll read it to you in a minute. But you go from trials, T, to prayer, P, wisdom, perspective, endurance, growth, and maturity, completion, and joy. And this is kind of the process of sanctification. This is the Christian growth process. These are the stairs you're going to ascend in order to become who God wants you to be. So let me read it to you then, and you can think of it with that picture in mind, and we'll come back to that picture in a couple different ways. But watch in this parallel way in which I'm reading. Uh, There'll be a verb in the middle. There's something you start with. There's something you end with. And the thing which you end with starts the next line sort of thing. So that's how this works. So it begins with trials. And trials compel us to pray. That's what happens, right? They say there's no atheist in a foxhole. Bombs are falling. Bad things are happening. You're like, dear God, please help. Look at September 11th. First thing, oh, we better pray. <laughs> you know, we've been doing much for a while, but boy, maybe we ought to start now. Trials compel us to pray. Then what happens, James tells us, is that faithful prayer yields wisdom. But you're not done there. The wisdom that comes from the faithful prayer grants perspective through the trial. As a result, you can see beyond the pain and endure. That endurance then, number five, leads us to growth and maturity as you're being refined through this process. And then as you're more and more refined, you're getting closer and closer to completion. And eventually when you get there, which is perfection in heaven with God for eternity, then it results in eternal joy. And as a result, what you can say then is count it all joy. (laughs) What is it all? Is it the misery of this individual situation? No. But it is this overarching, refining process that God has allowed into your life for the sake of drawing you closer to Him, making you who He wants you to be, and eventually getting you there where you're finally like, yes, now I've arrived and everything's okay. That's joy. But right here in the midst of it all, it's not necessarily happy, happy, go lucky, but if you get to the point where you can see beyond the suffering, then you can count it joy because you know what the end goal is. This is the process that God is working out in my life, and I'm guessing in many of yours as well. So let's go ahead and look then at the uh, context of James and see how he, d- he works those things. Um, The first thing he says is, I am James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He immediately identifies himself. This is what you would do, you know, on the phone if you don't have caller ID or writing a letter. There's always an introduction. Hey, this is so-and-so. I'm such-and-such. He starts with saying, I'm James. Now, what his readers know that you may or may not is that he's the brother of Jesus, the half-brother that is. They have the same biological mother. They have, uh, Jesus had the Holy Spirit as his dad and James had Joseph as his biological father. But he is Jesus' brother. Now, the other night at the dinner table, that really should strike you. 
<laughs> that really should. You're just sitting around like this, like, cool, he's Jesus' brother. No, you should be like, what? <laughs> Jesus' brother? And he liked him? <laughs> yeah. And he even worshipped him. Look, you just had Christmas. Don't sit there like you're unaffected. You had to sit at the table with your brother, right? <laughs> Here comes my brother. <laughs> if it wasn't your brother, it was your brother-in-law or somebody's brother. And you were there around the table trying to play nice and get along with them just fine. But the reality is not all of us like our brothers that much. And my brother can certainly tell you that his brother, and I am his only brother, is not perfect, you know? And my wife asked our two boys, she said at the dinner table one night, what would it take to convince you that your brother is God? <laughs> and they looked at each other like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, right, I live with this guy. I know him. He's not God. <laughs> He's a lot of things, but he ain't God. He's definitely not perfect. There's no way he's perfect. And yet, here is this guy that grew up with Jesus, not in a multi-bedroom mansion, but in a small little place in very closed, cramped quarters, saw everything he did, smelled everything he did, heard everything he did. I mean, they were together. And at the end of the day, he comes to the conclusion that my brother is God. That's crazy. You know, in fact, early on, James thought Jesus was crazy. When Jesus is gathering all his disciples together and he's calling them and starting a following, his family goes out, Mark chapter 3 tells us, and they heard it and they said, uh, come back home, buddy. <laughs> You're crazy. It says in verse 21, they went out to seize him for their saying, he's out of his mind. Don't mind him. <laughs> this is our brother. We'll just take him away. <laughs> Don't worry about this guy. And yet later, he's like, man, was I wrong? His brother just said to his brother, I was wrong. <laughs> That's huge. And now he's writing a letter to a bunch of other people saying, I worship my brother. Look, it says, a servant of God and the same exact thing, the Lord Jesus Christ. I am my brother's servant. How many of you want to say that? I don't. My brother doesn't. Our boys don't. But here is this guy who is so convinced of this person he lived with and his purity and his integrity and his perfection and his claims and his deity. He says, yeah, I am dedicating my life. Yea, I am willing to die for the fact that I think my brother was God. I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is significant. So he begins his book like this, and he calls himself a servant. Now, i got to be really clear. It's kind of hard to communicate this in our culture because we have this horrible history of slavery and racism and prejudice and all this other baggage and junk. But this is actually an amazing term. And as strange as it is to try to communicate it in a fair way, here's what I, I do want to try because it's in Scripture, so I'm going to go for it. And if I blow it, I'm sorry. Let's talk later. But Here's the word, it is doulos, which means slave. It is slave. And, Jesus, and James says, I'm a slave. Now, as I hinted, there's a huge difference between 2,000 years ago slavery and a couple hundred years ago slavery. It doesn't mean that either of them is necessarily good from our view, one human being owning another. That's bad. 
But what you have here in Rome is very distinct from what you had in the United States. In Rome, basically, you have four different classes of slaves, and they can be anything from your, like, concentration camp, you're going to die, to you are second in command to Pharaoh himself. Now, I said Pharaoh, I know that's Egypt, but I hope you get that thing, where, you know, Joseph is Potiphar's slave, and that means he's <laughs> a big wig. He is the royal advisor to the king. He is in the household of power itself. He lives in luxury and has everything he wants. There's a huge divergence here in economic class. So in Rome, there's basically four. There is, you're going to die. We're going to kill you. We're just going to get what we can first and put you in the mines. There is, okay, we don't want to necessarily kill you. You got a strong back. So we'll put you in agricultural work. And there's also a household servant. Now, this is where things really change. Because this is what most of the New Testament people thought of, is a household servant. And what it is, is someone who's basically said, okay, I'll work for you for five years. I'm going to learn a specific trade or skill. And then at the end of that five years, you're, you're going to basically let me go free and give me my citizenship. And now I have this skill that I can use, be employable, and be a citizen of Rome. And as a result, I'm good to go. And essentially, what that's a lot like is something like our GI Bill or something like that. Like, you sign up for the military, and you say, okay, I'm going to serve for X number of years. They're going to treat me, give me a skill. While I'm in, they're going to feed me and clothe me and whatever. I might die. You know, I might, I'm still... They're still the boss. I have to do whatever they want to set, whatever they say I have to do. But at the end of the day, if I make it, I'll be on to my next thing. That's that one. And then the fourth class and the final one is like the super-duper elite, the rich, the powerful, the wise, the house of the emperor himself. And so what's interesting here is when I think of this term, biblical servant, this idea, when you really read the Bible, you'll notice that nearly every letter with Paul or you know, some of these other guys start out like that. Hey, I'm a slave. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And it brings all of that into it. So that you say, hey, you know what? With Jesus, I'm willing to die if I have to. You know, at the end of the day, I've given my life away. And if it means going to the salt mines, I'm there. But it may or may not. And it also could mean that you're just going to be in a really toilsome position. You're going to have to work hard. You're agricultural. Or perhaps you're a household servant, and that means that you have a specific calling or specific task, and this is what you're going to do. Or, in fact, you could be, you know, in, uh, consider yourself a royal servant as well. And I think, in reality, when we consider ourselves, just about all of that goes into it because we could have to sacrifice our life for Christ, but at the same time, we're servants of the high king. We're servants of Jesus himself. I have the most powerful force in the entire universe living inside of me, and he calls me brother. That's pretty good. And so there's this huge range, this spectrum, but the key is for us to really think of ourselves as servants of Jesus Christ. And that's so significant because we call ourselves Christians. Yet in reality, if you really want to challenge your belief, ask yourself, how many times does the word Christian occur in the Bible? Anybody know? It's three. It's three. It's twice in Acts, and I think one in Peter. 
And in Acts, it's somebody else calling us Christians from the outside. It's never what the people in Acts call themselves. Peter's the only one who takes that name on for himself. Nobody in the Bible who's Christians really even call themselves Christians. What do they call themselves? Slaves, servants, in Christ. And it's a very different identity. It's not just a follower, but it is a complete life transformation that his DNA is actually flowing through my blood and my veins. That I am in him and he is in me. I am spiritually united and the Holy Spirit is now my lifeblood and I'm connected to the vine. This is a radical, radical difference. Maybe we shouldn't even call ourselves Christians. We just call ourselves slaves. We're servants. Of who? Of Jesus, the high king. That's who we are. So here is James in the first two words. Uh, we spent a little bit of time, but I hope you get the significance of this. This is Jesus' brother. This is his identity. He says, now, guys, I'm not going to mess around with any more explanations. You know who that is. I'm Jesus' brother, and I'm a servant of the high king. Here we go. Life stinks. Get used to it and even enjoy it. Count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. Now, let me start here with the word trials because um, getting to joy is pretty tricky. But it's interesting in the original language, there are three words here, the um, trials of various kinds uh, and encounter. And they sound like this. I'm just going to give you the sound so you can hear how rhythmic it is. But it is... Peripasmois, uh, peripestidae, poilikois. So in other words, it's all like pee, 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 pee. He's making a play on words. And what this actually relates to is our English word pirate. It comes from the same Greek words that are being used here. And the reason is this. Ask yourself, how do pirates operate? Do they walk up to you and say, knock, knock, knock. Hey, it's me, <laughs> you know. Captain Blackbeard with a Jolly Roger, and we're here to raid your ship. So if you will kindly move over to the side, we're going to take your stuff, and after we're done, we'll leave. No. Man, what do they do? Even in, you know, around the coast of Somalia today, they come speeding up on you from behind really fast. They don't tell you they're coming. All of a sudden, they jump on board, and they're like... And all of a sudden, people are dead, and there's blood, and it's a big mess. And then they take what they want, and they destroy, and they go. That's the way pirates work. They're not logical. They're not kind. They're not encouraging. They're not explanatory. They just sneak up on you and bam, hit you. That's the idea of this trial. Temptation. All of a sudden, it comes upon you. The other two places, or actually three in Scripture where this is used, this wor- one of these words is in Luke 10.30, where Jesus describes not the good Samaritan, but the guy that got beat up. And it says, he fell. It's the same word here that begins with P. And then in Acts 27, it talks about a shipwreck. And it says, the the ship struck the reef. Same word. And then in James 1, 2, you have this word as well when you meet various kinds of trials. It's like all of a sudden you're going along and you think life is good. It's not like the trial came and said, knock, knock, knock. Hi, I'm a trial. Here we go. It's like, bam, trial. Whoa, where did that come from? 
I was sitting in the doctor's office thinking I was, you know, fit and doing great, and all of a sudden his next word was, and I said, what? Whoa. Trial. That's what it is. It's a trial. And guess who the chief pirate is? Satan. He's described by the same word several times in Scripture as well. It's a tempter, a deceiver, a destroyer, destroyer, a pirate. This is someone who sneaks up on you from behind and intentionally knifes you in the back. James says, not only is this going to happen, but you need to count it joy. <laughs> wow, okay. Help me out here, James. I'm not quite following you. Well, here's how it works. He says, look, count it all joy when you meet, when you fall upon, when you strike, when you encounter, boom, pirates. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And when steadfastness has its full effect, you may be perfect and lacking in nothing. So what he does is he says, okay, step back for a moment. Look, here's the process. You're miserable in the moment, but the outcome is so much better that what you're in right now isn't quite as bad. I mean, it's bad. There's no being dismissal about it and saying, oh, Merry Christmas. Isn't that great? No, it stinks. It really does. There's no two ways around it. Jesus had to die on the cross for that. That's pretty bad. It's not good. So don't dismiss anyone's pain when they come to you and just say, eh, no, no, it's real, it's bad, it's a trial, it's a pirate, but God is still good, and God is in control, and God is sovereign, and so even though all of this is bad, the overarching plan is so much bigger and so much better that this is going to shrink in comparison. The size gets much smaller. The effect is this. And so what he says to do is, well, I, I, James, I, I still can't wrap my mind around it. I mean, it sounds really neat and tidy up here on stage, in pulpit, on Sunday. But in life, on the path, it is much more messy. So what do I do? It's difficult. The pirates are attacking, and I'm not sitting down reading my Bible and praying and drinking tea when the pirates are jumping on board shooting at me. (laughs) That's not working. What do I do? And James says, pray. Man, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And so many times it's hilarious because we just rip this text out of context, and we think wisdom is this thing that, you know, Oh, you know, now I'm a smart guy with a long beard and I read lots of books or whatever. But in reality, when James locates wisdom, he locates it right in the midst of trials. Sandwiched in between difficult times is the request for wisdom. That's when you need wisdom is when you're in trial. Why? I don't want wisdom. I want out. (laughs) I want deliverance. I don't want to get smarter. I want it out. But James says, ask for wisdom. Why? When I was a little kid growing up, people used to come to me and say, man, your dad, he's so wise. And as a little kid, I used to just think, oh, okay, because he's, you know, a lot of education, a deep Christian, a doctor, this and that, and this and that. Yeah, 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 I know. He's really smart. He can fix your lawnmower. He can do surgery. He can tell you how the microwave works. 
He can explain the Greek or Hebrew text. I get it. He's wise, right? He's an impressive dude. No, no. He's really wise. Huh? What do you mean? What I saw is my dad as a resident in, in Rochester in Minnesota where it's cold, even colder than here, riding his bike, you know, to go to his shift that evening and taping plastic bags around his feet and leaving the little old station wagon at home with my mom. What do you mean he's wise? I saw my dad, like, I I don't get it, working like 60, 70 hours a week at the hospital and then working another 15 or 20 at the hotel as night security guard and then volunteering at our church as a part-time youth pastor and then sitting on the porch with my mom drinking coffee and then still playing football in the street with me and my brother. How is that? I would be dying under that. How is he wise? The answer is this. What happens is, is when you're under trials and you pray and you ask for wisdom, what wisdom does is it grants you the perspective to see the long-term outcome. And as a result, the trials seem quite a bit smaller. And that perspective then leads to endurance. So what I saw in my father as two separate things is this incredible backbone and steel and grit and also wisdom were actually one thing, united together as a result of prayer. What you get from praying is wisdom. And what you get from wisdom is endurance. And that endurance yields strength. And that strength takes you through the fire. And as a result, you come out refined on the other side. That's the process. The word in Greek, in the original language for refinement, has to do with testing like they did for metals. It's a burning, hot, refining process. This is not fun. But it's good. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. I wish you a happy New Year. But when I say that, I'm wishing you, I hope, not what is good, but what is best. And I'm not sure exactly what that means because it could be difficult. And it's going to be a hard, hard walk. But it's up those stairs through the process. Let's show that picture one more time again, and I'll I'll walk you through it. You begin with the trials. They come, and they hit you out of nowhere, and you're like, bam, what is this? Natural reaction, pray, pray. And then as you pray, God grants you the wisdom to understand that. And that wisdom results in perspective. And that perspective enhances your endurance. And as you endure that hot, refining fire, then you begin to grow and mature and become more refined how Christ wants you to be. And then eventually you come to the point where he says, yeah, that's it. Now you've made it. Now there's joy. And there it is. Count it all joy. Man, there's somebody on our staff. I I asked her if I could tell you this. She said yes, but not my name, even though you probably know who she is. And she is very wise. I noticed from the day I got here, when we talked in different discussions and meetings, that she always seemed to have some sort of insight. Like, man, how did she know that? Or how did she pick up on that? Is that just womanly, womanly intuition? Well, it might be. 
But I think there's a little bit more there. And as I watched her, what I learned from her right away is boy, she was a person of prayer. I mean, anytime there's option A, option B, her thing is like, well, let's do C, let's pray. <laughs> you know, Let's not even make a decision yet. Let's just ask God what he wants us to do. And we'll pray. And we'll pray some more and we'll pray and we'll pray. And then you ask her a question at the end of the meeting and it's like, wow, where did you come up with that? Well, she didn't. It was given to her. There is insight, there is wisdom, there is understanding as a result of prayer. You show me someone who's wise and I will show you someone who prays. Wisdom comes, James says, from prayer. Let him ask God who gives generously to all. Now notice very clearly what he's talking about here is wisdom. He's not saying the new Porsche, the new Corvette, the new house, the new whatever. He says in this context, so many people who are like prosperity whatevers just rip it out and say, God gives you whatever you want, just ask him faith. No. God gives you trials and says, in those trials, ask in faith that I'll get you through. It's a very different message. It doesn't sell quite as well, but it's what the Bible says. That's why a lot of people hear Jesus and who really understand Jesus, they turn and go the other way. C.S. Lewis said, hey, if you want to be happy, don't become a Christian. Get a bottle of port instead. It'll do the job. If you want to follow Jesus, you get something far different. You get joy. And you come to these situations and you wish someone something and you don't say happy, whatever. You say, Merry Christmas. Because we're looking at the long-term process of the future that will happen in eternity future that results as a result of eternity past. Because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, you can look forward to whatever comes this year. Happy New Year comes because of Merry Christmas. It doesn't necessarily mean it's happy, but it means it's full of joy. So ask in faith, because why? God gives generously. God doesn't change, even though we do. The text talks about being a double-minded man. That's dipsychos, like two minds, two psychologies. And it's a contrast, not of having weak faith, but showing you what are human beings like and what is God like. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. What about me? Well, today I want one thing. Tomorrow I want another. Next day I want something else. You think I'm bad. You should see my kids. Do not take them shopping. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, I get to have it. You know? I'm not that much different, though. Pulling in the parking lot, I was like, "Woo, sweet truck, got to have it, you know? No different. I make fun of their plastic. I imagine God's making fun of mine, too, you know? But here we are with all these desires. We're double-minded, shifting, and it's saying God is not like that. Ask in faith, and it's a guarantee that his character, hear this clearly, church, his character is consistent, unlike ours. He's totally the same all the time. And so what you ask for, listen, this is huge. What you ask for when you pray, it's not what you can get from him, but it's the fact that you get him. Did you hear that? It's not what you get from him, it's the fact that you get him. C.S. Lewis says, I pray not because it changes God, but because it changes me. The key to asking in faith is not believing that you will get that thing, 
but switching your idea of what that thing is. The object of your faith. You can believe in Jesus because he's the same and he never changes and he always wins. He never fails. That is faith. I know that's going to happen. Jesus is going to win. I'm not exactly sure what the outcome of this or that will be. Only God knows. And I'll ask him for what I'd like it to be. But even if I don't get that, I need to trust him that it'll be what he wants it to be. You understand the difference there between the maturity of the one and the other? Worldly wisdom is totally different from what James is asking you here for. Worldly wisdom says, here's two paths. That one looks hard. Don't go there. Here's a nice smooth one. Finance it. You know? Sit down in front of the big screen on your nice leather couch and pay for it later. Walk smoothly into what you want now and don't worry about it one little bit. Come along. Where godly wisdom says, that looked like the short way. Here's the long, hard way. Let's go this way. Count it all joy. There's two divergent paths, and the world wants the most smooth, pain-free, easy one you can find. And it's really tempting because as Christians in North America, we want, our, we want to have our cake and eat it too. Like, can't I be godly and just not suffer? <laughs> no, not really. Even if you have a lot of money, it doesn't insulate you from suffering. You're still going to face relationships and health and the world we live in and everything else. Trials still come. So don't fix your eyes on temporary solutions, but instead fix your eyes on Christ. And when you look at this scenario, you say Merry Christmas and you mean it. And you say, come Lord Jesus, because you are my only faith. You're my only hope. You're my deliverance now and forever. Joy now and forever. Does anybody recognize that theme? Like Christmas Eve? This is huge. Wisdom that will endure the test of time is wisdom that is found in Christ. And you get it not by finding a band-aid or a temporary solution to fix your problem, but instead by asking God for who He is, He Himself, to invade and overwhelm your life such that all of your desires change. And therefore, you want what he wants you to want. And then when you want that, you ask and you get it because that's in accordance with his will. That is in Jesus's name. You may not be asking in Jesus's name for a Porsche because Jesus may say, that's not my name. (laughs) But if you're asking for joy, if you're asking for forgiveness, if you're asking for Christian growth, if you're asking for evangelism, if you're asking for disciple making, if you're asking for stuff like that, That's in Jesus' name. That's in accordance with his will. That works. That's something God wants to give you. And he's like, yeah, I will give that. I will give generously to everyone without reproach who asks for that. Sure, here. Man, ask in faith. Not in what you will get from him, but the fact that you will get him. That's real faith. James, a servant of Jesus Christ. Jeremy, John, David, 
whoever. A servant of Jesus Christ. Count it all joy. Here it comes, 2017. Who knows what? It's going to be tough, probably. I can't promise an easy path. But I can promise you Christ. And if he truly is Emmanuel, if he is God with you, then everything will be okay. What do I wish for you for this new year? Well, I wish you joy. I pray that whatever you face will compel you to pray. And that as you pray faithfully, God will grant you wisdom. And that from that wisdom, you will get perspective through whatever you may face. And that perspective will give you the endurance to grow. That your growth will result in personal and spiritual maturity. And that maturity will complete itself in joy. I wish you joy. Count it all joy. Father, we thank you for your greatness and your goodness to us. Lord, I know this is a difficult text. I know because I experience it and live it and suffer through it and try to, try to work it out. I pray, God, that uh, as all of us do, that you'd give us grace, that you'd give us strength, that you'd give us wisdom. Lord, we ask for wisdom just like you asked us to. Not because we want to be smart or impress our peers, but because we want to understand your eternal plan for our life. Give us wisdom that we may endure. Give us wisdom that we may suffer well. Give us wisdom that we may have joy, unspeakable, and full of glory. God, give us the wisdom that only comes with Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.